Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. second hour of Mornings with Carmen, and um, I just really wanted to make my segue, NASCAR races are not for racists, because it's a little play on words, and if they haven't already thought of that uh, as a slogan, that that might be the direction that they want to turn. You may have heard in the news at the top of the hour that NASCAR um, has uh, issued a very uh, succinct and direct statement about uh, the Confederate flag and those who wave it. Um, And so let me just tell you, as a person who lives in the South and is familiar with sort of the NASCAR environment, I'm not I wouldn't describe myself as a fan, but it's impossible to uh, to live in the southern states uh, here in the United States of America and be unfamiliar with NASCAR. It's a part of it is really a part of the fabric of life. Um, And this is a this will be a huge transition. Um, now that might be surprising to you. You may say, I can't believe there's that many people flying Confederate or rebel flags. Uh, oh yeah. In the back of pickup trucks and on the sides of RVs and painted on the sides of cars and on and on and on. Um, this is, this is big. Uh, it's one thing to, you know, have really nice, I mean, I say, I use the word nice here, uh, to describe the the marble and the stone used to create the statuary. Uh, it's one thing to have uh, individual statuary toppled. And, and let me just say there's biblical, uh, there are places in the Bible where you could turn, um, where idols do fall on their faces before the Lord. And some of that might be uh, an interpretive key that you use to what's happening today. Um, I recognize that there are others uh, who are disturbed at the destruction of that, which really, you know, uh, are pieces of artwork and pieces of history and have their place, whether or not our public squares or those places is a good conversation for us to be having. But the statement by NASCAR that uh, this particular visual representation is going to be no longer welcome in any form, in any way, in any of their venues, at any of their events, uh, let me tell you, this is going to provoke a lot of conversation um, among a group of people who has been avoiding it. So having hard conversations, really uncomfortable conversations, real conversations um, as Christians, that is actually what this entire program is all about. Next up, Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to have a real conversation about the 20th, uh, 26th anniversary of his wedding day. How did he ever talk Hallie into that? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, commencement addresses, and we're talking about the 72 hours that changed the NFL. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Happy anniversary, baby. Got you on my All right, joining me now, Peter Kapsner. So many ways to introduce him. Today, he is the lesser, 
No, no, that's not true. Uh, he is an integral part of that which we would refer to as the Capsners. Hey, happy anniversary, man. Uh, thanks, Carmen. Yep, 26 years uh, this morning. Um, it's, it's, you know, I'm sure as our listeners know, time uh, goes incredibly quickly at times and incredibly slowly at times, but it just, it's hard to believe 26 years of anything, right? I mean, that's just, it's, it's a long time. I know, you have, you have babies who are now adults, Yeah. Uh, we do. We have a twenty-year-old at home. It's, Isn't that weird? I mean, like, you know, that's and, weird, and, and right? Every season, it is, and every season is delightful and stuff. I, I sometimes uh, find myself wistfully thinking about just wanting to do Tinker Toys with him. You know, when he was two, three, four, five years old, and then I'm incredibly grateful for the complexity of conversations that we can have. And he's actually attending the same university where I teach. Uh, he'll be in my class in the fall. And so all of these things, I mean, you just can't make up the different seasons of life. But I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful this morning amidst all of the chaos in our world that keeps unfolding. And wow, that is huge news in the NASCAR that you just uh, talked about at the top of the hour. There's so much going on. So to just have a little respite in the day, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for it. So you and I don't really have the backstory of how NASCAR came up with their decision, but we do have um, this conversation that we can have about the 72 hours that changed the NFL. Um, let's uh, let's talk about that, and then um, and then after the break, you and I can talk about uh, commencement addresses and what people are saying to graduating seniors this year. Tell us about yeah. the 72 hours that changed the NFL. Yeah, well, you know, there's the, the NFL obviously has uh, they, they've been a huge part and probably the most uh, central part from a sporting world standpoint in all of these conversations about racial justice, uh, specifically around police brutality. I know you've talked about it on your show. We've talked about it that it started with Colin Kaepernick and in his kneeling or taking a knee uh, during the anthem before the start of an NFL game. And since that time, and Kaepernick was a, he was quite an accomplished quarterback and by many accounts was seen as sort of the next superstar that could lead the San Francisco 49ers uh, to the Super Bowl. And he had a down year uh, the next year and he was still continuing to kneel before the flag and some other uh, NFL players joined him in that process. And he was released after having a, a difficult year and he never found an NFL job again. And uh, that's incredibly unusual when the NFL is known for bringing back sort of retread quarterbacks in their age 35, 36, 37 year old season, just to even be a backup somewhere. And when you have a, a potential blossoming superstar who's at the the prime or the height of his career, it, it, it really reeked of a blackballing of Kaepernick because of his stance on racial and social justice, again, specifically related to police brutality. Well, that's been something that has been going on again back and forth in the NFL. There's been two sides. You could probably make a case for either side of it, whether you want to kneel in front of the flag or whether you shouldn't, if it's disrespectful at that point. And of course, we had a, a pretty extensive national conversation about that. Well, enter Drew Brees into the conversation, who's the quarterback of the uh, very successful New Orleans Saints. He is a Hall of Fame quarterback, to be sure. He holds many records passing-wise in the NFL is right up there with the Tom Brady's and the Brett Favre's, maybe just slightly below them, but but quite a person of stature, decided in the midst of all of the George Floyd protests to come out with his own statement that said, uh, basically along the lines of, I don't think anyone should ever kneel, or he would never kneel uh, out of disrespect, it, because he believes it would be disrespectful to the flag. And Carmen, that ignited a firestorm in the NFL. That, that was not... Um, some players are going to kneel, some players are going to not. He got savaged by the almost the entire NFL community w without any kind of uh, support from anybody. And even uh, one of his really good friends and wide receivers in the locker room 
posted a pretty extensive YouTube video on his response, and he really savaged Drew Brees as well. And it, it really, that, that firestorm that resulted caused uh, Drew Brees to go ahead and apologize once, and then he apologized again. And he backed down from his statements, and he started talking about how he needs to learn a bit more about the situation as well. And, and so what we've seen in these 72 hours that happened where all of this was going back and forth, we've seen the NFL basically shut down Colin Kaepernick and shut down all of what was related to what Colin Kaepernick was doing to turning and entirely embracing Black Lives Matters entirely embracing this movement. The commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, who runs the whole uh, organization, came out and basically said he was sorry. They really made a mistake a couple of years ago. He didn't mention Kaepernick's name, but he did uh, basically allude to the fact that they really didn't know what they were talking about. And, and that is, I mean, the NFL is by far the most influential sports league in our country. And we also know, obviously, how influential sports is in general. And so when you see this change taking place, uh, I don't know what their reverberating effects will be, but something that went from sort of out of the mainstream and Colin Kaepernick is now directly in the mainstream. And I think it's going to have a pretty dramatic impact on our country's psyche and how we think about these things, especially when you combine it with what you just talked about in, in the NASCAR, where they're banning the Confederate flag. There is a massive social shift going on. And, and maybe the last piece we could mention about that is the NFL also, uh, they're, they're no dummies from a financial standpoint. And the reason why I would suggest that they did not support Kaepernick uh, a few years ago is they could read the tea leaves of their constituency. And they knew that if they supported him, that they would lose a lot of revenue. And by contrast, uh, these, you know, the people at the top of these organizations are paid a lot of money to understand social trends and therefore capitalize from a revenue standpoint. And uh, and I think they can see things uh, that are uh, a semi-permanent shift is coming in our country, and they don't want to be on the other side of it where they would ultimately lose some revenue. So all of it was a fascinating 72 hours. I don't think the NFL has seen anything like it, and it definitely represents a shift moving forward. I think it's fair to say, um, Peter, that culture moves sometimes because culture makers move culture. And yes. and NASCAR and the NFL are culture makers. Um, they're not just representative of culture. They are culture makers. And so I think that for um, for people who were waiting to see whether or not there would be levers that would move culturally, that would not only sustain the conversation that we're now having, um, but really propel it forward among groups of people who might otherwise be resistant to having hard conversations about these things. Um, it, it looks to me like uh, both NASCAR and the NFL are sort of willing, willing at this point to take whatever might come to them uh, in terms of backlash from constituencies um, to, to move the conversation forward in the right way. Yeah, no, that's I think that's absolutely true. And 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 again, they are so influential in doing so. People do take their cues from the people, the public figures that are out there. And oftentimes it is within the realm of sports uh, or leisure like that. When you have public figures saying what they're saying, it's pretty tough to see the tide going the other direction. I have a hard time seeing any influential public figure that is is going to slow the momentum of where we're headed. Now, you and I could talk all day long about um, the merits of where we're headed and what are the good things about where we're headed and what are the cautionary things we need to think about. But I don't think there's any question at all that there's a significant momentum that I don't think is going to be slowed or reversed anytime soon. 
Continue my conversation in just a moment with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary for a cheerful toast and fill it happy Paul Perot's having fun at his job today. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. That's solid. <laughs> hey, I hey, got, Peter. I, ha- yeah, happy anniversary, man. Uh, thanks, Carmen. I, I got to admit that that Barney Rubble rendition of that is probably my favorite one. When he bangs that out on the Stoneway piano, I mean, that's etched in my memory from my youth. It's my favorite. Absolutely. All right. So um, talking about things etched in our memory, um, do you recall any of the commencement addresses offered at any one of your graduations <laughs> along the way? Well, so, so here's the problem because with that, Carmen. It, I that, do not. Yeah, as as a professor, I've been a part of not only my own uh, commencement addresses, but many others beside that. And uh, I I can't say that I can. Uh, there, there was one that stands out uh, to some degree, but I don't even know that I could quote verbatim even a single sentence from it. Um, and and it's not that they're unimportant, but I certainly don't remember many of them. So um, mine mine today were I to offer. Well, oh, I'll let you do this first. If you were to offer a commencement address today. Um, to graduating seniors in 2020, would it have a title or a theme? And if so, what would it be? Gosh, I'm terrible at titles. I mean, I don't okay, think I have ever uh, made, I'm gonna do made one. Okay, you've got one. Let's hear, let's hear it. You're getting a hood. Other people, You're... a hoodie. <laughs> because the reality is there's this huge distinction in our culture, this huge educational disparity, and that is a part of the conversation we have to have. So the hood and the hoodie. Yeah. I yeah. think that's actually a really interesting uh, point. I, I think as much as um, the, obviously the conversation going on about race is so critically important, I was talking with a friend of mine who also teaches, and he teaches in the field of ethics and theology, and, and we were talking about how uh, class and and the um, the economic disparity is as important as the racial conversation right now, but isn't maybe highlighted for some very understandable reasons. But those two things are so interwoven together that uh, that class and race, both of those things need to be talked about. And, and because the opportunity created uh, by the finances that you have, even as a, as a young person growing up, is going to be dramatically different than the opportunity created by somebody who doesn't have the finances uh, growing up. And unfortunately, again, those two things are often tied together. And uh, it is it is such a, a tremendous um, unraveling that needs to happen to create an equality of opportunity in our country if we're also going to create racial opportunity and equality at the same time. Yeah, um, it'd be interesting to see how every uh, Rhodes scholar out there maybe responds um, in the coming days and weeks, months and years um, to revelations about where that money came from. Um, And, you know, and so, you know, do people who benefited from being a Rhodes scholar now turn around and actually, you know, fund the college education or or the private elementary or high school education of a person who otherwise is not going to have access to that kind of educational opportunity. I mean, that yeah. that to me is what tangible action looks like right now. If you're you know, if you're now awake to the reality, um, don't just be, you know, like woke in your tweets, like actually yeah. say, all right, you know what? I've been putting that I'm a Rhodes Scholar on my uh, resumes all these years. I now know how that money, how that money came um, and and whose lives paid for it. And I now am going to do something tangible to make sure that, uh, you know, that that someone who is black and would otherwise not have access to the kinds of educational privileges that I have enjoyed um, is going to get them. I am going to pay for that. 
Yeah, I, it, Carmen, that is exactly right. And I, and I think it's one of the least talked about dimensions of, of what is going on in the strife that we have in our country is that we, we live in sort of this collision of values and we're not necessarily uh, aware of it all the time, but uh, sort of the underpinning value of the United States of America is that you make your own way. You, um, you take care of you. Again, you do you. You make sure that uh, you and your family and the generations to come are provided for. And, uh, and so you spend an entire lifetime focused on sort of making your way forward. And, uh, and, and when there's a competition, that there is in a free market capitalistic system, which I support in many ways. But when there's a competition for resources, you're gonna have um, fewer resources than the amount of um, people that need those resources. And and you can begin to then hoard and collect and keep those resources, and that gap just keeps growing. I mean, if, if you think about it, if there's one loaf of bread and 10 colonies of ants, only maybe three or four of those colonies of ants are going to actually get that loaf of bread, and then the resources are gone, and those ants probably aren't too likely to turn around and give their bread to the rest of the colonies. I mean, that is uh, what we talk about in some of my ethics classes when we talk about, uh, about the downside of capitalism is it is a competition for resources. Well, when you when you have that value system underpinning uh, our country, and again, I'm a business person, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for the open and free market that we have in our country. But if it if it simply is that, uh, and it doesn't ever collide with the values of God's kingdom, which are directly opposite from taking care of you, it is that I will give up of myself so that another person can be made whole. I will. Um, greater love has no person than this, right? And and God's kingdom pulsates with love. And you can't have greater love than if you give your life for a friend. And so you have these collision of values going on, Carmen, that I think the church really needs to attend to and can really lead the way in this and say, hey, look, we get it that we celebrate businesses that win the market share. They have the most amount of the resources. They drive other people out of business. Fine and all of that. But but that is a bit antithetical to what we're talking about here in the kingdom where we're called to turn and give and serve and yield. And all of that language is different. And I don't think we appreciate how different the values of the kingdom are versus the values of truly any a culture in this world. We can critique American values, but we could easily apply this to Russian values and Japanese values and Australian values. The values of the kingdom are always different than the values of the countries of this world. And if you don't have a clear-eyed look at that, it gets really confusing really fast. Yep. I uh, completely agree. We're going to start looking for really tangible ways to walk this out. Um, thank you, yes. Peter, as always, for, um, you know, I'm sure your virtue signaling is very good, but thank you for being a guy who does more than that. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you, Carmen. I'll, I'll try to at least. I'm always signal. looking for a compliment. I just am yeah, sometimes you, hard to find one. Yeah, I, I know. I know you're well. Again, as, you, as you've <laughs> indicated to me before, that um, you know my mother is an absolutely lovely woman. Of that, you're sure. But there are <laughs> gaps in my life. So, um, so, so thus your affectionate name for me, Gapsner. Praise God I, for Hallie. Praise God for Hallie, who has been helping you for 26 years become you know, more the man that God has created you to be. That's uh, really what marriage is about, right? Each one yeah, compelling yeah. Uh, and encouraging the other to live more fully as Christ designed. Um, so she, praising God for yeah, that today. She, she clearly has more jewels in her crown awaiting her on the other side than no, I no. do because of all of no, this. No, so, no. It's questions. all good. It's all good. It's all good. Hey, <laughs> blessings, my friend. We'll be right back. You're the best, friend. So we're going to continue um, to engage in these most difficult of conversations. Um, this is not the first time 
that I have been around the block in a conversation about the Confederate flag nor Confederate monuments. Um, this may be a new conversation for you. Um, so for those of you who are communicating uh, in via social media and for those of you communicating over the text line, I'm listening. I hear you. Um, and we are going to keep talking about these things. Right now, we're going to talk with uh, N.T. Wright. Uh, we're going to talk with Tom Wright. He's going to help us understand how to talk about God, how to live in the present pandemic, how we recover from it, what the church is calling in the midst of it. N.T. Wright is a research professor of New Testament and early Christianity uh, in Oxford. Um, he is an award-winning author, uh, and he is joining us today to talk about God and the pandemic. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so we come upon our fiscal year end here at the Faith Radio Network in just a matter of a couple of weeks. And we would love for you to be a part of helping us achieve the goal of being fully funded. And so if you have never taken advantage of the opportunity to financially support the ministry. Today's a great day to do that. Uh, and so you do that by going online at MyFaithRadio.com. And you click on the Donate Now button. You can also donate via the Faith Radio app. I always encourage people to listen, I mean, to give where they listen. And so if you're listening via one of our live broadcast channels, um, go ahead and give us a call, 877-933-2484. Uh, or you can text the word GIVE to that same number, 877-933-2484. If you listen online, go ahead and give online. If you listen via the app, go ahead and give there. If you are listening to this as a podcast, uh, I think you probably should go online. <laughs> I don't really know. In the repurposed podcast version of this, let me just say, go online to MyFaithRadio.com and hit the Donate Now button. Become a part of the people who make the ministry happen, not just the people who are recipients of it. All right, so move today from being a recipient of the ministry to an active participant by joining us at this fiscal year-end in year-end giving. We'll be right back. My friend Rob cried freely telling his story about his young son's challenging life. Daniel was born with a double cleft palate, dramatically disfiguring his face. He had surgery, but the evidence remains, so people constantly notice and occasionally make remarks. Daniel, however, is unfazed. He just tells people God made him this way, so what's the big deal? He was named Student of the Week and so was asked to bring something to show his classmates for show and tell. Daniel told his mom he wanted to take the pictures that showed his face prior to the surgery. His mom was concerned. Won't that make you feel a bit funny, she asked. But Daniel insisted, oh no, I want everyone to see what God did for me. Try Daniel's defiant joy and see what happens. God has handed you a cup of blessings. Sweeten it with a heaping spoonful of gratitude. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, N.T. Wright, research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford, award-winning author. He's got more than 80 books that bear his name. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, Some of my favorites, Simply Jesus and the New Testament in its world. Today, he's here to talk with us about his newest work, 
God and the Pandemic. You can find it at GodandThePandemic.com. Tom, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's wonderful to have you uh, with us today. Um, my listeners know that I like to begin at the end um, or begin with the end in mind. And so you really bring your book to uh, a conclusion with three questions. How do we live with this problem? Uh, how do we come through it? And what is the calling of the church in the midst of it? So with those three uh, questions in mind, take us into God and the pandemic. Well, yes, uh, those are indeed the questions one is left with. Uh, the reason I wrote this book was that I'd written an article in Time magazine, which you may remember from 12 weeks or so ago, at their request, I hasten to add. And I got so much interesting feedback from it, including a lot of negative feedback, that I thought, hey, I need actually to explain a bit more what it was I was trying to say and ward off some of the criticism. So the bulk of the book is doing that. But then, of course, one is left with those three questions at the end. And I think one of the things that really helped me here was looking back to the early centuries of church history when uh, it became notorious in the ancient Roman world, even when they were trying to stamp Christianity out, that if there was a plague, if there was an epidemic, if, if there was serious disease in a town or city, anyone who could afford to would get out and run and flee to the hills where it was less noxious. But the Christians would stay and would nurse people and would uh, give of themselves generously and sometimes would catch the illness and would die themselves. And people would say, why are you doing this? We're not your family. We're not your kin. You don't owe us anything. Indeed, we've rather hated you. And they would say, oh, we follow this man, Jesus, and he gave his life for us. So that's what we have to do. We have to look after the sick and the poor and so on. And, and that, was an, that was one of the reasons why Christianity spread, that people realized these Christians were marching to a different drummer. And so uh, in all sorts of ways, one of the really exciting things about what's happened in the last three months is to see the way the medical professions have done unstintingly what the church itself did in the early centuries. And of course, many of those folks are practicing Christians, many aren't. Um, but there is now a, a sort of social sense in Western society, at least as a whole, which has been inherited from Christianity. And the church needs to get behind that, to reinforce it, uh, to emphasize the, 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 the vocation to care for one's neighbors. And this goes all the way from helping elderly neighbors down the street with, with their groceries through to um, helping with uh, volunteering for things in the community, food banks and so on, through to volunteering for uh, driving vehicles for hospital emergencies and that sort of thing. All that kind of thing has been going on in this country. And of course, it isn't only Christians who've been doing that, but it's one of the great things that as society has uh, inherited some of those great Christian imperatives. So we in the church should celebrate that by getting getting behind it and doing what we can. And of course, the general surrounding context of prayer, of worship continues. And I don't discount that or treat it as merely a sort of a bit of piety on the side. It seems to me the church should be doubling its efforts to be praying to God, to be lamenting, to be uh, asking what the way forward is, because sure as anything, most of our politicians are, pl are flying by the seat of their pants. They don't know. Why should they? We've never been this way before. So that's just for starters. Flying by the seat of one's pants is what stands out to me there at the very end. Um, and we don't we don't really as Christians want to be just reactionary in the midst of things. We want to have um, uh, an approach to the conversations of the day that settles in on the sure. character of God, um, the reality of his faithfulness over time. So talk with us. You talk about this in the book, but talk with us about why it matters 
not only how we view God, but how we talk about God in the midst of these kinds of events. Yeah, th- there's a real danger, and this has been so for the last two or three hundred years in Western Christianity, that we talk about God in general and bring in Jesus only, as it were, at the last minute to explain how actually we get saved or whatever. Um, the New Testament does it the other way around. It insists that we don't really know that much about God until we have looked at Jesus. You know, John's gospel says, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has revealed him. And I think one of the things we have to learn, and uh, every generation has to do this, is that if we really want to talk about God, God's will, God's purposes, God's way, we have to do so through the lens of Jesus himself. And, and we have to reread the Gospels with that in mind, because you know, people talk about if God is in charge, dot, 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 or is God in control? And if so, what's he doing? And people forget that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are all about Jesus saying, this is what it looks like when God is in charge. And he's healing people and he's celebrating parties with all the wrong people and he's weeping at the tomb of his friends, and then he is going off and being beaten and spat at and finally misjudged and crucified. And and so the idea, this is what it looks like when God is in charge, is very paradoxical. And people still want God somewhere to be a kind of celestial CEO, sitting upstairs, pressing buttons and pulling levers. And the picture of Jesus in the Gospels demands that we rethink that. and, And doing that job is at the heart of what that little book is all about. I'm talking with Dr. N.T. Wright, um, and we're talking about his new work, God and the Pandemic. You can actually listen to it as an audio book if that is easier for you to do, um, but it is now available. You can find it at GodAndThePandemic.com. We have to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Tom about lament. I'm also going to ask him about Jesus in the Old Testament, because um, I think many of us miss the things we're supposed to be um, recognizing about about God in Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as well. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking with uh, N.T. Wright. Um, his friends call him Tom, so we're going to call him Tom as well. <laughs> Uh, We're talking about God and the pandemic. Uh, You can check it out at GodandThePandemic.com. Tom, a listener, has texted in and wants me to thank you for the comments you made about the Gospels and how Jesus shows what life is like when God is in charge. Please tell him thank thank you. you. That's from Mary Rose. So, Mary Rose, there you go. Thank you very much, Mary Rose. Yes, amen. Um, okay, so Tom, let's talk about lament. Um, weeping with those who weep is is a part of the conversation we're having in so many ways in the culture today. Talk about the power of lament um, and really just the gift that it is to us. Yeah, I've been fascinated by this for some time, and it seemed to me listening to the early remarks as the pandemic got underway, this was a dimension that was lacking in several accounts that I was reading. But if we look at the Psalms, and the Psalms we have to remember were Jesus' prayer book as much as uh, as the Old Testament prayer book, um, Jesus himself quotes Psalms of lament like he quotes 42 and 43 in John chapter 12. He quotes Psalm 22 as he is hanging on the cross. 
and he quotes another one in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and if, if Jesus needed to use those lament psalms, then it shouldn't be a surprise that we do too. But the point about lament is that it's not trying to control God. It's not trying to say to God, okay, this is a mess and we want you to do A and B and C and we want it right now. It's a way of saying, oh, we need to be humble here. We need to put ourselves, our ambitions, our hopes, our aspirations on hold. That's why in the book, I quote that remarkable line of T.S. Eliot written in 1942 when the Germans were bombing London. He said, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. There's always the danger that as Christians, we think that we're in charge. You know, somebody said many people want to serve God, but usually only in an advisory capacity. And lament is a way of saying, no, we are not God's advisors. We are God's debtors. And we just have to come humbly and say, Lord, we are in a mess. We are weeping. We are groaning. And then, then the point is, and this comes through so strikingly in Romans chapter eight, that at the point we do that, the Holy Spirit is groaning within us. And Paul says, with inarticulate groanings, even the Spirit doesn't know in that moment what words to say. That's an extraordinary thing to say. So it's a way of saying to us, if we are spirit-led Christians, there comes a time when we let go of our desire to tell God the way it is and what he ought to be about and merely lament and weep, as you say, with those who weep. And that's a very powerful and profound place to be. And from there, there can emerge quite new insights as to what we should be doing, as to where God is in the midst of all of this. And so it goes. When we're talking about what we should be doing and we talk about what God is doing, um, sometimes uh, the conversation moves in a direction that seems um, pretty pie in the sky for a lot of people, and they want to know uh, about tangible change. We are—maybe this is a cultural thing for us. Maybe it's a generational thing or, you know, the, the, the product of being an American. But we <laughs> like to do stuff. And mm -hmm. and yes, we like to think that um, we are not only masters of our own destiny, but increasingly masters of the destinies of other people. Right. So there is yes. there is something that we have to get over um, in order to think Christianly about these things. Talk with us a little mm -hmm. bit about our just our understanding of the Bible and how we receive it and how we interact with it in terms of who God is and how he is trying to grow us up. You realize what you just asked for there was a full systematic theology with practical application. I and I feel like if you can deliver that in three or four minutes, then I really will have achieved um, a oh. superior status in the radio world. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, the, the main thing to remember is what I try and do in this book is that Jesus is the middle of it all, that we can mm -hmm. read the Old Testament. We can read the great stories from Deuteronomy, from uh, Amos, from the great prophetic narratives which say if Israel breaks the covenant, God is going to make bad things happen to Israel. And that happens. The exile is the worst thing that can happen. But at the same time, we read other stories, other narrative strands in the Old Testament, like Psalm 44, which says, um, we're in a mess, but it wasn't our fault. We didn't play false. We haven't broken the covenant. So what's going on? And of course, ultimately, the book of Job says that loud and clear that we cannot explain why this innocent sufferer is suffering the way he is. And here's the point that these narrative strands and all the other strands in the Old Testament meet and collide in the person of Jesus and in his death, which is simultaneously under the curse of the law, as Paul says in Galatians 3, and as the innocent righteous sufferer, as the New Testament insists. 
he, he was suffering not for his own sins, but for ours. And so we, when we are tempted to go back to the Old Testament and say, um, ah, here's a verse which says um, bad things have happened to you, but that's because you've sinned. Hang on, hang on. That might be so, but you can't just read it straight off the event. You have to take it through Jesus. And then when you do that, you come out the other side into the world of the New Testament where, and I do this in the book, in Acts 11, when the disciples in Antioch hear that there's going to be a great famine, they don't say, oh, God is punishing us, so who's done something wrong and what should we repent of? They simply say, who is going to be most at risk here? What can we do to help and who should we send? In other words, you get this great sweep of scripture that all those narratives come rushing together in Jesus and by his dealing with them on the cross and his launching of the new creation in the resurrection, then the followers of Jesus have a spirit-driven mandate not to give exact answers as to how we got into this mess, but to give practical uh, steps to how now to be the hands and feet of God, to be the body of Christ in his suffering world. And, and and I hear what you say about Americans always wanting to fix things. That's one of the reasons that my wife and I love coming to America, because you're such can-do people. We British used to be like that in the 19th century. We thought we had to run the world. We've kind of given that up now. We've, we've handed it over across the Atlantic. But there is a cost. And, and it seems to me only when we understand the gospel imperative and the way that it works and how the kingdom of God really works, can we take those cultural imperatives and baptize them to be actually useful for God rather than simply arrogant and self-serving? There we are. That's that's your two minutes. <laughs> oh, it's it's a feast. It's a feast. Um, let me ask this. Do you read the audio bu- audiobook? Is it your Do voice? Oh, oh, yes. Yes, it is. Did, um, yes. Um, so I, see... I, I've never done... I've I never done that. that. <laughs> I've never done that with one before, but they were in such a hurry to get it out. They said, uh, rather than commission somebody else and have them find their way to a studio in the middle of the lockdown, please, can you do it? So I had to go and hide in a little cupboard on our top floor away from traffic noises and put uh, jumpers and dressing gowns and towels around the microphone so that it dulled all echo to, to reproduce what it would be like in a radio studio. So I've never done that before, but it was quite fun in a way. It took me an afternoon, but, but there it was. So you can either read the book in an afternoon yourself or you can listen to N.T. Wright read it to you. Uh, you can get it as an audiobook in his voice, which would just be delightful. Uh, N.T. Wright on God and the Pandemic. You can check it out at GodandThePandemic.com. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's very good to be with you. God bless you and keep you safe. It, Amen. It was a gift. I received that. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. All right, I have told uh, producer Paul, um, just bookmark uh, N.T. Wright and just tell him he can just come back and talk about anything, anytime he wants. And explain to us what jumpers are. Yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know all of that stuff that he it's described. So He's putting in the... I know, I know. And he got in a cupboard, which I suspect yes. is like a closet. It is a closet, yes. And, yeah. So I have uh, I have engineered, you know, a radio setup in all kinds of places. I have built pillow forts with cushions and... You know, and, and all those kinds of things. And so I just wish there was some sort of, of video record uh, uh, or visual record of N.T. Wright in the closet reading to us God in the pandemic. Like, I feel like that's that's gold, man. That's gold. <laughs> that would be fun. OK, um, we're, we're done for today. We got a whole nother day set up for tomorrow, though. R- uh, great stuff, I'm sure. Right, Paul? Great stuff tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Always great yeah. stuff. 
All right. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Visit us online at MyFaithRadio.com. Sign up for the 10-week Bible study with Susie Larson. Uh, You know, we got all kinds of great stuff there. Go visit the website. Check it out. Do a little year-end giving while you're there. Hey, and just know we're so grateful for you. I'm grateful for you today. I'm grateful to God for you. Thank you for your continued prayers and presence with us in this. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.